blinded by the light. It's going to be a, a commentary on spiritual sight and spiritual blindness, and we'll get into that as we move along. Um, one well-known commentator on John points out that when the light shines, some are made to see, and others thinking that they see are blinded by the light. So if you guys haven't heard that song, it will forever remind you of John 9, so you're welcome. The Lord will prompt you to recall what we discussed here today. Um, and so the ninth chapter of John's gospel is, is a single story that characterizes for us both spiritual sight and spiritual blindness. Now the entire chapter accomplishes this as John covers the details of one miraculous sign, and that is Jesus' healing of a man who was born blind. I'm so sorry for you note takers, we're going to be blazing pens today, so just do what you got to do. Now before we even get into this text, we've got to wrap our heads properly around this idea of uh, miracles. Now, firstly, this event takes place sometime after the events of chapter 8, where uh, the Jews took up stones to stone Jesus, uh, but he hid himself and he left the temple grounds. We don't know exactly, it just says, as Jesus passed by, uh, it's probably between the Feast of Tabernacles, which we've been in for a while, and the Feast of Dedication, which is also known as, anybody know? Starts with an H, ends with an Annika. Good job. Um, but thematically, we see Jesus is still presenting himself as the light of the world. That was the last I am statement that he made. I am the light of the world. And we also are seeing the same opposition here from the Pharisees. who These guys seem to be lurking in just every bush as Jesus is moving about and fulfilling his ministry. They're always lingering and lurking nearby, listening in and watching him and looking for an opportunity to catch him, right? In sin or in error or in some way that they can accuse him. And so in this encounter, Jesus is going to perform a miracle on the Sabbath once again. And this is by no mistake, right? Jesus is not confused about the calendar or what day of the week it is. He's intentionally and outwardly challenging their understanding of the law and of him. And so, Lots to cover, but by way of introduction and reminder, we must consider, guys, what a miracle is. Because I've used the word twice already today and both times improperly. We've got to have a proper understanding of what the word miracle means because it's a term that we often throw around without too much thought or care as to what we're saying. And without a biblical understanding of miracles, uh, it's going to be difficult for us more so, uh, not only to grasp God's glorious displays of power in his son, but also the insistent unbelief and rejection of his opponents. So a proper understanding of miracles exalts God to a higher place and makes unbelief even more unbelievable. I'll just leave you with that. So very briefly, refresher on miracles. A miracle, by definition, is a suspension of natural law. It's a suspension of natural law. It is an exception to the rules that God has created to govern this world and this universe. It is unlike anything that normally happens in the course of our day-to-day existence on planet Earth. So, don't have a pitchfork mob waiting for me outside the door today. I don't want to offend any of the moms or the grandmas in here, but the birth of babies, this is a big one that we call a miracle, it's, it's actually not a miracle, technically speaking, okay? It is mind-boggling and mysterious and amazing and glorious, but it is not a miracle. It actually happens all over the place, all, all the time, all over the earth. That's how God designed us to reproduce, right? So it's, it's, it's not by definition a miracle, though it is awesome. Uh, 
It's not a miracle when you get to work on time when you're running late because all the lights were green, right? Like, oh, it was a miracle. All the lights were green on Jefferson. Not a miracle. Lights turn green, right? They also turn yellow and red. Not a miracle. Uh, it's not a miracle when you find a parking lot or <laughs> when you find a, a space in a full parking lot, right? You're like, Lord, give me a space. And you see it and you're like, oh, it's a miracle. Not a miracle. People leave parking spaces. People enter parking spaces. Happens all the time. Miracles are in an entirely different category, right? That's what makes them miraculous is that they're unordinary. And the sign that we're dealing with today is what I would call a miracle of miracles. It's a feat that modern science cannot replicate. It's a feat that had never been seen before in the history of the world up until this story, up until this point. There's no reference to any blind man being healed in all of the Old Testament, fun fact. And apparently there are only a couple instances mentioned in Jewish tradition. Take that with a grain of salt. I wasn't there. If it's not in Scripture, I don't know if it happened, all right? So whatever, take that for what it is. But never in biblical history has there been record of a man born blind who was healed of that blindness. Pretty cool. There are, however, prophecies that when the Messiah came, he would perform this unheard of miracle. Isaiah records multiple prophecies about this. He says, In that day the deaf shall hear the words of a book, and out of their gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind shall see. And then Jesus famously quotes the Isaiah scroll. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord." So this was a sign that would be associated specifically with the coming of the Messiah so that there would be absolutely no doubt as to who he was. Truly a miracle among miracles, truly unique, truly a sign of the one who was doing the healing. And it was also, fun fact, the most common healing that Jesus did in his earthly ministry. Again, to show beyond the shadow of a doubt who he was and whose power he was exercising when he did this, okay? Good on miracles. Cool. Remember also that Jesus does not perform miracles for spectacle, right? He rebukes those who just came and followed him to see the magic. The signs always point beyond themselves. And so all at the same time when he's healing, he is meeting actual physical needs of actual people. He's communicating spiritual truths along the way. And he is authenticating his claims about himself. He's proving himself to be the Messiah. And the question, who is Jesus, is, as you guys know, the most important question that a person can possibly answer. And John leaves no mystery to that question whatsoever. That is the point of his writing this entire book. So let's get into verse 1. As Jesus passed by, by the way, I read from different translations up here just so that you guys hear something other than what you may be usually uh, accustomed to. So don't be weirded out if it looks different than what you have in front of you. It's all the same. Jesus passed by. He saw a man who had been blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? Jesus answered, it was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must carry out the works of him who sent me as long as it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. So I'll say we could have easily spent the morning here in these first five verses uh, because without much in the way of introduction here, Jesus teaches his disciples a very important lesson, and it's one that applies directly to you sitting in this room. 
So we have two introductory points here before our next six in the meat of the chapter. So verses one through five. Number one, darkness and light are both instruments of God's glory. Darkness and lights are both instruments of God's glory. Now, the disciples are not in darkness regarding Jesus, right? They're following him for the right reasons. They, they believe his word. They know who he is. But they are in darkness regarding this issue of sin because instead of looking at this blind beggar with compassion, right, being a blind man in this day and age was as close to being a dead man as you could possibly be. You, you basically have no resources. If there's no one to take care of you, you beg blindly in the streets hoping that someone will show compassion and mercy toward you. So this guy has nothing. And so instead of looking at this guy with compassion, they see him as the object of theological speculation and discussion. They want to get to the bottom of this issue. Now, we know from the Scriptures that sin and suffering are closely connected. I don't think there's any mystery or debate there, right? Genesis 3 makes it very clear that after the fall, humanity experiences suffering and death as a direct result of the entrance of sin into the universe. And time would fail us to go over the passages throughout all of Scripture that directly link sin to suffering, both globally and personally. It is true that some folks do suffer as a direct result of their sinful choices, right? Romans 1. I mean, that's all over the Bible all over the Bible, or even suffer as a direct result of their parents' sinful choices. This is unfortunate, but this is a reality too, right? Uh, as is the case for uh, those whose mothers used drugs while they were pregnant or, or all kinds of situations like that. There are people that suffer because of the sinful choices of their parents. But the disciples make the same mistake that Job's friends made during his suffering, and that was to assume that suffering is always and necessarily punishment due to a person for specific sins that they have committed. They assume that since this poor man was born blind, either A, he had somehow sinned in the womb, right, when he was punching and kicking his mom's uh, uterus, or that he was the recipient of his parents' sin, that somehow their sin had been accounted to him, right? Neither of which is true, according to Jesus. So he corrects them. Now, we can say with confidence that all suffering, globally, personally, is linked to sin. But what we cannot do, listen carefully, what we cannot do is carelessly attribute other people's circumstances to their sin, or even to our own, for that matter. The fact is that we simply don't always know. Some sin is met with specific suffering, right? If you use uh, brain-destructive substances over and over and over, your brain is going to suffer inevitably, right? These are just reaping what we sow. But sometimes it is the case that God may strike his own even more severely with affliction for his own purposes. And that's something that we've got to wrestle with. That's something we've got to contend with. He may do that and at the same time allow the wicked to seemingly prosper in this life, right? The Old Testament is full of psalms and lamentations and questioning God, God, why are the wicked prospering and why do the righteous suffer affliction, right? These are things that we have to wrestle with. Putting aside the entire book of Job, uh, Paul was a man that was well acquainted with suffering. He had physical ailments that plagued him. He and Peter and John the Baptist and so on and so on were executed for their ministry, right? If you guys think that Jesus has promised a life of ease, comfort, and all things nice, 
Uh, it's just not the case. It's clearly demonstrated in the Scriptures. And it may not even be a result of sin. It may be that God is doing something through that suffering. Of course, Jesus himself being the ultimate example, yet he was without sin, right? So we know he didn't suffer as a result of his sin. He couldn't have. The bottom line is the secret things belong to God. The secret things belong to God. The hidden things belong to God. And we greatly error and dishonor him by trying to attribute the suffering of the unfortunate to their hidden sins. Oh, look at this guy. You know, he's all strung out, laying on the street. He, this must be punishment for the things that he's done. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't, but that's not our attitude toward other people. We would do much better to let God be God, let God be God and restrain our curiosity and instead look at the disabled with mercy, right? And then maybe look in the mirror and say, dude, don't worry about that guy. Take a look at yourself. Let the Lord search you in your heart that while in passing, you know, hidden judgment on another, you don't fall into temptation yourself. Or condemn yourself. Oh, I'm going through this, X, Y, Z, whatever it is. Loss of job, loss of finances, loss of a loved one, loss of health. God must be punishing me for my sin. You don't know. You are not privy to know that. We walk by faith. You've got to trust him regardless. All things are under God's oversight and control. Give me a blank stare if you believe that. (laughs) All things are under God's oversight and control. He gives and takes away, yes? He gives and takes away. Job says we must accept both good and adversity from his hand. We can't just accept the good things from God and say, well, he, he must have turned a blind eye when my suffering came into my life. No, he knows. He's in control of all things. We are not privy to all his plans and all his ways. And so Jesus corrects his disciples on this matter, saying to them that it wasn't this man's sin or his parents' sin that caused his blindness, but that in fact this condition was within God's control and within God's purpose, so that the works of God might be displayed in him. So while the disciples concern themselves with the unknowable details of the past, I wonder why this guy's suffering. Jesus is concerned with the urgency of the present task. What is in front of us right now? This man's condition was not a punishment, but an occasion for the mighty works of God to be displayed. Even the darkness of this man's eyes was an instrument of revealing God's mercy and compassion to the world. And so it is the same for the darkened, blind state of humanity that we covered thoroughly in previous weeks. And if you go back and listen to the series on Romans, it's a dead horse beat into oblivion that the darkness would receive light to the praise of his grace. The light shines ever more darkly. (laughs) I'm sorry, guys. The light shines ever more brightly in a dark world. And so Christ was sent to manifest the kindness of God so that in all the earth he is glorified. Carson says the healing of the blind man is not just a miracle. It is a sign. It is the work of the Father mediated through the sent one to shed light on those who live in darkness. So Jesus impresses the urgency of this mission to his disciples. He says, look, don't worry about that. This is an opportunity for the works of God to be shown. He says, verse 4, we must carry out the works of him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. So number one, darkness and light both serve God's glory. And number two, shining the light is an urgent task. Shining the light is an urgent task. 
He makes it clear to them that this work that is in front of him, he must accomplish it with them at his side before he is taken up, that the time is limited. And now more than ever, as he enters the last few months of his earthly life, before night is coming, when the radiance of the Son of God would leave earth, physically speaking, of course. Not that the work of God stops at the death of Christ, we know that, or even at his ascension, but that Jesus was and is bodily the most pure, visible light of God to mankind. Just as the sun makes everything in the world visible and alive with its light, Christ the Son made visible the glory and works of the Father most fully in himself. And so if he is not physically visible, the fullness of God's glory is not fully visible. He had the Father's work to do. He had eyes to open to behold the light of the world. And now in his absence on earth, he has left us with urgent work to do. And we too must share in his sense of urgency, not letting the time get away from us, as Paul says in Ephesians 5. Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of your time, because the days are evil. There's an urgency the unbelieving world still lies in darkness without Christ, right? What is darkness? What is it by definition? It's the absence of what? It's the absence of light. If Christ is the light of the world, then wherever Christ is not, darkness is. Does that make sense? Wherever the light is not, darkness is. We have been given the great task of declaring that light has come into the world. Come out of darkness and behold the light. We've been given the task of declaring that in Jesus is life, and that life is the light of men, and that light shines in the darkness, and darkness, what, cannot overcome it, amen? Jesus has overcome the world, so there is an urgency for us to be witnesses to that light, right? This is all out of John 1. Go back and read the first chapter, and this is all made clear, and now it's being lived out right in front of our eyes. And so now we get to the sign and the main points of our passage. Verse 6, when he had said this, he spit on the ground and made mud from the saliva and applied the mud to his eyes and said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. So he left and washed and came back seeing. So point number one here in our main portion, those were introductory points. Number one, Jesus initiates to give sight. Jesus initiates to give sight. So without the blind man seeing him, obviously, or even asking him, Jesus initiates this encounter with this blind man. He is always initiating. He is always initiating in the dark world. He is always initiating with us. He even prompts us as his children to come to him and to cast our burdens on him. He doesn't need to wait for us to cry out for help before he begins working in our lives and in our hearts. And we're given here a very short and succinct account of what happened to this guy. Jesus spits on the ground, he makes some mud with it, and he puts it on the man's eyes. It's pretty bizarre. And then he tells him to go and wash in the pool of Siloam, which the guy does without hesitation, and the man receives his sight. Simple as that. This is the who, the what, and the why. Jesus told him to do this, this is what he did, and he did it so that the works of God would be displayed. These are the most important parts now, everyone else is going to get hung up on the how, as we'll see in the rest of the chapter. Well, how did he do it? Well, look, he, he told me to do this, and I did it, and I gained my sight. Yeah, 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 but, but 
how did you get your sight? Well, Jesus told me to go do this thing, and I got my sight. And they say, yeah, 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 but how did he do it, right? So the how is irrelevant. We don't need to know how. We never need to know how God does what he does because we wouldn't understand anyway, right? We need to know what he has done, who has done it, and why he has done it. These are the important questions to answer, and we have them right here. We have them right here. The man who was born blind can now see by the power of God through Christ that the works of God would be displayed in him. Namely, divine creative power and ultimately salvation will come to this man. Now, maybe you guys have studied this chapter before, and I'll tell you I have heard every theory under the sun about the how here, the spit mud, right? What does the spit mud mean? What does it mean? Guys, we don't need to get lost in the weeds here on the mud, okay? We can, we can speculate all week long. The healing power used here is the same. The methods vary, right? Jesus healed five different blind people, and he did different things each time. Sometimes they just got the spit. This guy got the mud. Sometimes, you know, it, it doesn't matter. There's no power in the, in the signs themselves. The power is in the power of God. Does that make sense? So we don't need to spend all morning talking about mud and spit. It's just going to get weird. Um, these are outward signs that Jesus uses at his disposal. Okay, that's it. What is interesting and of note is that John doesn't include any extra hints about the spit mud. He just says that it happened. But he does give extra information in recording what Jesus told the man. He said, go wash in the pool of Siloam. And then he gives us an extra detail that Siloam means sent. Why? Well, I believe there's enough there for us to at least take a peek under the hood, okay? Um, there's enough detail about the pool to warrant us noting the symbolism here. The pool, which is the same place that the high priest would draw water for the Feast of Tabernacles that we just got out of, same place where he would draw water, the pool was made as a result of King Hezekiah digging a tunnel that transported water from the... Sorry, guys, I don't speak Hebrew, so the pronunciation, you have to give me a pass here. From the Gihon Spring in the Kidron Valley, there was a spring there, and they dug this tunnel that would transport fresh water to this pool called Siloam in Jerusalem, and it was built as an anti-siege tactic so that if the city was sieged, there would always still be an incoming source of fresh water into the city. Now, the pool of Siloam symbolized God's flow of blessing toward Israel, the favor that he had sent them. And we're told in Isaiah that the ancestors of the Pharisees actually rejected this water, and it was a symbol of their rejection of God's blessing. Um, he says, Inasmuch as these people have rejected the gently flowing waters of Siloam and rejoice in resin and the son of Ramalia, now therefore, behold, the Lord is about to bring on them the strong and abundant waters of the Euphrates, even the king of Assyria and all his glory, and it will rise up over all its channels and go over all its banks. So since Israel rejected the gently flowing waters from this spring, the Lord brought against them strong waters, which was a metaphor for Assyria to come in and wreak havoc on Israel. So this pool represents and symbolizes Israel's rejection of God's favor and their obstinance toward him, despite his gracious initiating love toward them as his chosen people. And there is no more fitting place for this man to go and wash than in the pool, which has a name meaning sent, where the sent one himself told him to go. 
It's symbolically a call to go and wash in the waters of the sent one, to go wash in the waters of God's blessing, to go wash in the waters of Christ, the one who came to his own and what? Was rejected by them. He was rejected by his own as they rejected the sent waters of Siloam that God had provided for them. Pretty cool, huh? Well, not cool for them, but, you know, the symbolism's cool. Uh, So there's that. There's your symbolism for the day. We're going to move on. We'll get to the mud later. So point number two, sight produces, again, spiritual sight, not general sight. Spiritual sight produces trust and obedience. Spiritual sight produces trust and obedience. This one is super simple, but it's worth pointing out that this man is going to progress throughout the chapter in his knowledge of Christ and in his trust of Christ, right? This is in the infancy of his belief where he really knows nothing about Jesus. All he knows is that a man named Jesus told him to do something, and he was satisfied with the words of Christ to immediately act upon them. He doesn't even know who he is, and yet he obeys. What a challenge that is to us who know that he is the living God in the flesh, and yet we disobey him. This guy's just sitting there, he can't see a thing, and someone spits on some mud and wipes it on his face, and then tells him, go wash. I mean, how is he even supposed to get there? He's like, yeah, no problem. Right, all right, here we go. Yep, going for a bath, right? The, the willingness to obey, the willingness to trust the words of this man who he doesn't even know. Though his faith is not yet nearly fully developed, we see an immediate and simple readiness to obey and to follow the direction of the one that is leading him to the light. And as a result, he gains his sight. And for the first time in his life, he sees. And everyone around him takes notice. It's a big deal. First time in all of history. Verse 8. We're 30 minutes in. This is not good. So the neighbor, don't worry, we can do it. So the neighbors and those who previously saw him as a beggar were saying, is this not the one who used to sit and beg? And others were saying, this is he. Still others were saying, no, but he's like him. The man himself kept saying, I am the one. And so they were saying to them, how then were your eyes open? And he answered, the man who was called Jesus made mud and spread it on my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went away and washed and I received my sight. And they said to him, where is he? And he said, I don't know. So the miracle that has happened to this man is so incredible that skepticism is already sprouting up, right? It's natural. The more incredible the circumstances are, the greater the degree of skepticism among those that knew him. Some said, yep, that's the guy. And others, unable to even conceive of such a thing, astonished and doubting, they find it easier to believe that it was just someone else that looked like him, right? It's probably not him. That that can't happen, so it must be someone else. And so they keep asking him, and he keeps insisting. And this is pretty much going to characterize the rest of the chapter. Yes, I'm the guy. Yes, I was blind. Yes, I can see now. How did it happen? I already told you. Everyone has questions for him that he can't really answer at this point. How were your eyes opened? Where's the guy that did it? Well, I don't know. I was blind, right? I didn't see where he went, and I don't know how he did it. I already told you. And this event clearly stirred up quite a ruckus among the people. And so, as was fitting to do, they decided to seek the counsel of the religious authorities on the matter. Unfortunately, the leadership of the day were blind men themselves leading the blind. And so, another controversy ensues. Verse 13. They brought the man who was previously blind to the Pharisees. Mistake. Now it was a Sabbath on the day that Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. And the Pharisees also were asking him again how he received his sight. And he said to them, he applied mud to my eyes and I washed and I see. 
It's, okay, that's what happened. Therefore, some of the Pharisees were saying, this man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. But others were saying, how can a man who is a sinner, a.k.a. a despiser of God, it's not saying someone who has sin, it's saying someone who is nothing but a sinner, a reviler of God. How can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? And there was dissension among them. And so they said again to the man who was blind, what do you say about him since he opened your eyes? And he said, he is a prophet. So number three here, light divides. Light divides. For the sake of this text, I'm going to define blindness and sight, spiritually speaking, okay? And when I talk about the blind from here on out, I'm going to be referring to the willfully blind, right? Not the helplessly blind, the willfully blind. You guys got that? So we're talking about those who refuse to open their eyes. So this is the Pharisees' first interrogation of this man. Don't worry, there'll be more. And again, they're asking him how he received his sight, and he tells them in like six words, right? I was sitting there. A guy said to do this, I did it, I see. I don't know what else to say. And as we see, the, as, the, as the crowds were divided in John chapter 6, you remember there was division all over the place about what was going on. Now the authorities are divided about this man, Jesus. So one of the effects of Jesus' coming is inevitably division. Division. He said it so himself. Luke 12, 51. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on in one house there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided father against son and son against father and mother against daughter and daughter against mother, so on and so forth. Since there is no neutrality with the Savior, we're either for him or we're against him. Division over him is inevitable. It's something that we have to expect. When his light shines, those that see run to embrace it. And those that have shut their eyes to the truth refuse to see, and they squeeze their eyes ever more tightly shut that they might remain blind, right? If you guys have ever been walking in darkness for a long time, and then someone flips on an LED, your instant reaction is to shut that thing off as quickly as possible because it's painful to your eyes that have been in darkness. It was no chance or mistake that Jesus did this particular miracle on the Sabbath. He intentionally provoked them again, and he drew out what was inside their hearts. And upon hearing the man's testimony of what had happened to him, there's a division right down the middle. The opponents say, this man is not from God. He cannot be from God because he doesn't keep the Sabbath. They already had their minds made up that Jesus had broken the Sabbath in the healing of this man. But the question is, did he? Well, obviously not, because he is the sinless one. He did not break the Sabbath. Apparently, in their eyes, he had broken at least three different laws, none of which are actually biblical laws, but traditions of the Jews. There was the anointing with spit, which apparently is working, you know, and then the, the making of the mud is a form of kneading, so he's, he's using, he's working with his fingers to make mud, and then the healing, right? You're not supposed to heal people unless they're on the brink of death on the Sabbath day. Again, this is all according to the Jews. This is not found in the Scriptures. Because he had violated their legal minutia by doing good, again, they deemed him to be a sinner and not sent from God. They failed to recognize over and over and over that the Sabbath rest was made for man. Not the other way around. The Sabbath was not meant to be a burden. It was supposed to be a day of rest for Israel, that they would trust God and cease from their working for a day 
and allow God to be God and provide for them. The Pharisees, in their pride and their self-righteousness, had added so many regulations to the Sabbath law, they had so convoluted and complicated God's day of rest that it was no longer rest at all, but in fact, it was work to avoid working. Does that make sense? They made it so hard to not work that it was work to not work. And so they've completely perverted the entire idea of God's design by making it laborious, right? They made a burden out of what was supposed to be rest. And it can't be missed that this is exactly what is done with Christ. He is the true and final Sabbath rest of God. He came to save man from bondage and enslavement and blindness and toil and working. He came to offer light and life freely, And that's why the free gift was a stumbling block to the Jews who saw no need for him because they were righteous in their own eyes according to the law. And so instead of coming to him for rest, they doubled down on their insistence on working. They want to work. Make no mistake, guys. We in this room, Christians, can fall into the same kind of deception. We are not above being deceived as much as we would like to believe so. It's not the case. We are liable to do the same thing, turning the grace of Christ into burdensome weights for people to carry, placing ourselves and others back under the weight of the law instead of seeing the freedom of Christ as the power and the opportunity to obey, right? 1 John 5 says what? That his commandments are not burdensome. His commandments are not burdensome. Christ is not a burden. He is the one that came to take burdens and remove burdens. He took our burdens for us that we would no longer have to fear God's judgment because of our failure. That all who come to him weary and burdened would find what? Rest. Rest for their souls. Jesus came to bring rest. If you are not finding rest in him, then you have not properly understood him and what he came to do. He didn't come to lay more weight of law on you, but to set you free from that weight, that you might serve him and obey him from a place of freedom, a place of rest, a place of peace. Amen. Amen. So the blind Pharisees insist that he is a Sabbath breaker, therefore disqualifying himself, while the others in the group see the obvious fact that he has performed signs of such magnitude and such goodness that he could not have come from anywhere else. Despite the existence of lying signs and wonders, there was no mistaking where Jesus' power came from. Who but God could open the eyes of a man born blind? And in the midst of all this, again, they ask him to give his appraisal. What do you say about him? And he says he is a prophet. It doesn't seem like he cares much to engage in this theological debate that's going on here. He just knows what's been done to him. And so his confession has progressed from he's a man named Jesus to he's a prophet. The light of Christ has further illumined, enlightened the understanding of the one whose eyes were opened. And with increased knowledge comes increased boldness on his part. With increased knowledge comes increased boldness. And meanwhile, those with their eyes blinded only want to hear what they want to hear. And with every questioning, they become more and more guilty in light of the clear work that Jesus has done. So let's go. Verse 18. The Jews then did not believe it about him that he had been blind and received sight until they called the parents of the very one who had received his sight. And they questioned them, saying, Is this your son who you say was born blind? Then how does he now see? 
His parents then answered and said, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees we do not know, or who opened his eyes we do not know. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews, for the Jews had already reached the decision that if anyone confessed him to be Christ, he was to be excommunicated from the synagogue. It was for this reason that his parents said, he is of age, ask him. So, number four for y'all note takers, willful blindness is persistent. Willful blindness is persistent. In the face of evidence, in the face of reason, it persists. In spite of the witness of the neighbors and the man himself, the Jews refuse to acknowledge what has happened to this guy. They will not accept reality because it stands to challenge their religious system that is rotten to its core, and they will not stand for it. Since they don't want the truth, they're going to rid themselves of it. So they've got to find some way around this problem, so they decide to bring the parents in for examination, right? Maybe these guys will trip this whole thing up. So they ask two questions. Is this your son that was born blind, and how does he now see? And again, certain that they can find some way out of the reality that Jesus really healed this man, they are convinced that they've missed something or that some detail has been hidden from them. And the parents, in fear, answer very cautiously, but they do affirm that this son of theirs has been healed. So the miracle is further attested to, and it's undeniable at this point, right? We gave birth to him. He was blind. He sees. How? I don't know. Who? I don't know. They're not ready to admit that it had anything to do with Jesus out of fear of the Jews. So they say, look, we don't know the details. He's an adult. Ask him yourself. So now we get interrogation part two with this poor guy. Keep in mind that he's just seeing for the first time in his life, and he spent half his time getting grilled by a bunch of angry Jews. So it's only natural that his patience starts to kind of wear thin here. Uh, He's tired of looking at these guys. So verse 24, so for a second time, they summoned the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He then answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. Willful blindness is persistent indeed. As they harden their hearts against Jesus and against this man, their blindness manifests itself in more and more ways. Ignorance, outbursts of anger, denial, irrationality. I mean, it just goes on and on. They call him in again, and they beseech him by God to tell the whole truth. Now, it's pretty clear here that they're not interested in getting to the facts of the story. They are interested in getting this man to give up some detail that will unravel the whole event. And so they say, give glory to God, which is a way of invoking someone to confess or tell the truth. We see that in Joshua 9 when Achan, I always remember this from his kids' ministry, Achan stole the bacon. He took a bunch of stuff that he wasn't supposed to. He took spoils of the enemy and hid it under his tent. And it didn't work out well for this guy. Joshua confronts him and says, give glory to God. Don't lie to me. And he confesses, and he and his whole family get stoned and burned. So it's pretty gnarly. Um, Nevertheless, This is a way of evoking the truth from someone. Confess. Essentially, don't lie in God's name. Give God the glory. The ironic thing is, in order to give God the glory in this way, they're imploring this guy to become liars like them. They've already made their judgment against Christ, and so they're saying, hey, give glory to God by blaspheming him along with us, right? Come and join us in glorifying God. They were willing to do anything but see And I think a lot of us can relate with them if we're honest about our past or maybe even our present situation. 
Was there not a time before Christ opened your eyes that you would do anything but see him for who he is? I know that was me. I was ready to believe anything. I mean like aliens seeding us here and, and all kinds of crazy stuff in order to avoid accepting the reality of Jesus. Right? Don't laugh. You guys had some weird theories too. Despite the overwhelming testimony of the Word of God and the very creation that we live in, some would sooner believe anything than admit that they were wrong about Jesus. Pride blinds the heart, blinds the mind. I've been there. Most of you have probably been there. We've got to understand this when we're communicating with those whose understanding has been darkened. The pride needs to be broken down. And unfortunately... But fortunately, his works and his words testify that he is, right? He says, I am. He is. And those who have seen with spiritually open eyes cannot deny what they have seen. There's no going back. Once your eyes have been opened, they are stuck open. They cannot be shut again. Once you have seen the light of Christ, the Jews insist over and over, this man is a sinner, just tell us the truth. And I love his answer. Whether he's a sinner, I don't know. I'll leave the theology to you, you know, supposed experts. But one thing I do know, though I was blind, now I see. You deal with that. You make sense of it. I know what happened. This man knew that he had lived in darkness, and now for the first time he had seen light. He doesn't have a robust doctrine here. He doesn't want to debate the Sabbath with these guys. He simply had his life radically changed by Christ. Simple as that. I was blind, now I see. Has anyone here in this room experienced that? I was blind, now I see. What else can I say? You guys deal with the implications of that. I got nothing else to say. I see. And so he's tiring of their questions. He probably wants to go look at the world that he's been blind to his entire life. And so he becomes bolder and bolder as the questioning drags on. We're going to make it through this. We're almost there. Verse 26. So they said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? I'm getting sick of hearing this. I'm sure he was. He answered them, I told you already and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? You do not want to become his disciples too, do you? Number five, while willful spiritual blindness brings ignorance, spiritual sight brings boldness. Spiritual sight brings boldness. Those who have seen and know the truth have no reason to fear. And so we see here our impartial investigators, right, our detectives here, they want to go over the story again. Let's just make sure we have this right. What did he do and how did he do it? And again, they're asking all the wrong questions. It doesn't matter how he did it. They're desperately trying to find a hole. And they get sarcastically slapped in the face by the man at this point. He said, I already told you and you didn't listen. Are you wanting to go over the details again so that you can become his disciples? Is that why you keep asking me? Do we not engage in these type of conversations with people? They want to know the answer to every event that has ever happened since the creation of the universe or they will not believe. It's like, well, what about this? If I answer, are you going to become a Christian? No. Then we're wasting our time here, right? That was one of Pastor Bill's famous, uh, famous sayings, right? Are you asking because you want to know or are you asking to continue in this meaningless you know, debate that we're having here. What, what's your goal? You're asking just so you can get out of being responsible for your sin. Well, if God's so good, then how come I'm evil? Because you're evil, okay? It's not his fault, right? Anyway, 
So in direct relation to his growing sight and boldness, their blindness and their rage is growing in equal proportion against him. Verse 28, they spoke abusively to him and said, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. Here we go with this again. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he is from. The man answered and said to them, well, here is the amazing thing, that you do not know where he is from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if someone is God-fearing and does his will, he listens to him. And since the beginning of time, it has never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And they answered him, you were born entirely in sins, and yet you are teaching us. And so they put him out. So this time, he really strikes a nerve, and we're told that they spoke abusively to him. They continue to insist that, this, that being a disciple of Moses and being a disciple of Jesus are incompatible with each other. you got to be one or the other. When in reality, a disciple of Moses is a disciple of Christ, and vice versa, a disciple of Christ is a disciple of Moses. If one believes Moses, he will believe Christ, right? That's what Jesus said. If Moses was sent by God, how much more the Son? As John said in chapter 1, for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. He is the greater Moses. So the man embarrasses them with basic reason yet again. He says, well, imagine that. You don't know who sent him, and yet he opened my eyes. This has never happened. Look at the facts. It's not the story that has parts missing. It's you. Common sense has been completely lost on them. Jesus has more than proven himself by his works. They speak for themselves. And again, they're not just displays of power like the false prophets do, but of mercy, of mercy. And the Jews thought, as MacArthur puts it lovely, that Jesus was a deranged, untrained blasphemer. And they called him a demon-possessed Samaritan, right? They don't like this guy. And yet he did what only God can do. How do we reconcile these two things? Somebody has to be wrong here. And now he's at the point, this man, that he jumps in to comment on their theological errors. And to summarize, I'll just quote James for you. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working, right? God doesn't answer prayers miraculously of folks who are in utter rebellion against him. There is no way that Jesus is working the works of God while at the same time being an evil man. If he were not from God, there is no way he could do the things that he is doing. Now, this man exhibits the same boldness that we must maintain when we are pressed to deny what we know that Jesus has done in our lives. Tell us the truth. We know Jesus isn't real. We know he was just some crazy guy. What is going on here? Not that we should seek out reproach, but we must be willing and ready to suffer loss as this man was for the namesake of the one who has opened our eyes. There is such greater reward to be had in following Christ than in fearing men. We need the perspective of Moses, who Hebrews tells us chose to suffer oppression with God's people rather than to experience the fleeting enjoyment of sin. He valued disgrace for Christ above the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking ahead to his reward. Who cares if we get kicked out of places for the sake of Christ, or if we lose out on certain social circles, or we don't get invited to certain events or gatherings? Who would complain about being kicked out of a tomb? That's what this guy is having done to him. 
well, you're out of here. It's like, well, I quit, you know? It's like, forget it. Why would I want to be here anyway? You guys are dead men. It's better to suffer with God's people than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of the world. And this man recognized that his allegiance was with the one who had healed him before even knowing who Jesus truly was. And this strike at the Pharisees' pride was more than they could bear. They don't hear a word that he said. They certainly don't like this untrained simpleton getting the best of them. All the evidence in the world won't convince a heart that remains hard. And since they can't handle the evidence, what do they do? Attack the witness, right? And rid themselves of him. And ironically, they accuse him of being born entirely in sins. Well, even if that is true, he, unlike them, is not destined to remain in that state because he's about to see his Savior for who he is. Let's wrap this up. Verse 35. Jesus heard that they had put him out, and upon finding him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? And he answered by saying, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have both seen him, and he is the one who was talking with you. And he said, I believe, Lord, and he worshiped him. Again, we find Jesus is the one pursuing this man on his own accord. He found him the first time, and now he finds him again. The first time he gave him physical sight, but now he's going to give him something infinitely better. And he asked him, do you believe in the Son of Man? Now, we already touched on this, that spiritual sight produces trust and obedience. And now we see in addition to that, that spiritual sight also produces worship. He says, who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? So he believes that Jesus is a prophet. He's already said that. He believes he's a man of God. He said that. And so he trusts him to lead him to this son of man that he might believe in him. As if to say, yes, as soon as you'll point him out to me, I'll believe in him. The son of man, of course, being a title for the Messiah, the one that Jesus preferred to use of himself. It's associated with his deity, his authority, and his judgment. And much like the Samaritan woman, Jesus reveals that he is the one. He's not just a man named Jesus. He's not just a prophet. He's not just a man of God, as the man has said already. Those things he is, but those things alone do not bring salvation. Jesus must be seen and worshipped as the Lord, the Son of Man, the Son of God. Not like God, not a God, but the God, one with the Father. And the man believes on him. And he sees him with both healed physical eyes and now opened spiritual eyes. And since his eyes are open, he immediately falls on his face in worship. Nothing else is fitting for a person who has received sight. Amen? Seeing the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ, the image of God, what else can we do but worship him? And so the man worships before him, and Jesus receives it again. There is no mistaking that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh, or he would not receive worship. And now Jesus uses this event to preach one of the shortest sermons on record, the last two verses. And Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world so that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Those who were with him from the Pharisees heard these things and said to him, We are not blind too, are we? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no sin. But now that you maintain, we see your sin remains. Last point, number six. The light makes the blind to see and the seeing blind. The light makes the blind to see and the seeing blind. Apparently, the boldness of this healed man was so great that he actually worshiped Jesus publicly. 
This was out in the open for people to see. And so his act of confession was not in a hidden room somewhere, but out in the open for others to see him bow before the Son of Man. And so the whole encounter here becomes a type of parable that Jesus uses to teach about spiritual sight and spiritual blindness. He says, for judgment, I came into this world. Now, this is not a contradiction of earlier statements that Jesus made about why he came. He most certainly came to seek and save the lost. He came to give light of revelation to a dark world. He did not come to condemn the world, but that through him it might be saved. But as a result of him being the brilliant shining light of God, some are made blind by his coming. He did not come to judge, but as a result of his coming, the children of light are separated from the children of darkness. He did not come to condemn, but as a result of his coming, many condemned themselves by their unbelief, right? That's John 3.18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So judgment is a byproduct of light coming into the world. Light divides. And the light of Christ has one of two effects. First, that those who are blind, a.k.a. those who are blind and know it, may see. For they see their need to have their blind eyes open. Carson puts it this way, that John is stressing the point that a certain poverty of spirit and a loss of personal pride and a true acknowledgement of spiritual blindness are indispensable characteristics of the person who receives spiritual sight, true revelation at the hands of Jesus. We've got to be humbled, humbled enough to see that we're blind, humbled enough to know that our eyes are not open, and he is the one who can open them. But to quote James, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Sight comes to those who confess that they can't see and turn to the light that they might see. In the same way, Jesus came not for the healthy, but for who? The sick. He did not come to call the righteous because there are none to call, but he came to call sinners to repentance. And in the same way as John 8, willful enslavement sees no need to be set free. Now willful blindness also sees no need for sight so that those who see may become blind. This is an urgent warning against pride. As Proverbs 26 warns, do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. So confident were the Pharisees that they could see that they utterly rejected anything to the contrary, only confirming their darkness, so that when the brightness of Christ appears, the darkness in them is revealed. They revile him. Why is that? Jesus already explained it. This is the judgment that light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his work should be exposed. The light of Christ reveals the darkness of humanity and it's an extremely uncomfortable place for us to be. Well then, when the wicked hear him saying these things, they can't help but butt in and ask, and they're expecting him to say, no, of course not. We're not too blind too, are we? We're not blind. You're not saying that we're blind. And he says, if you were blind, you would have no sin, but now that you insist that you see, your sin remains. 
Because they insist that they can see, they remain responsible and unforgiven, persisting adamantly in their blindness. They think they see already, and so they won't let the light in. They were blinded by the light. They would rather remain blind than confess that they are blind and have their hypocrisy exposed. Jesus said it would be better if they were truly ignorant and truly blind, but he removes that excuse from them because they are willfully waging war against the truth. Their ignorance could be cured if they would only just acknowledge it, but thinking themselves to be healthy, they are unable to see their desperate need. But it doesn't have to be that way. It doesn't have to end that way. For every person in this room, and if anybody's watching online, God is ready and able to cure blindness. He's ready and able to cure blindness, and it is no difficult thing for him. It's no difficult thing for God to do this, and he is always working. Even on the Sabbath, God is working. If God ceases to work, we will all immediately disintegrate and cease to exist. If God is not always working, upholding the universe by the word of his power, we're in big trouble. He is always at work. He is always opening eyes to the truth, and everyone in here can testify to that. He is always opening eyes to the truth. As long as it is day, as long as time still remains, sight can still be had. Jesus commissioned his apostle Paul, who we read from weekly in Acts 26, to open unbelieving eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in Christ. If you have received the light, if you have seen Christ and had your eyes opened by him, if you have abandoned your faith in yourself and believed in the Son as the only Savior, Paul says God has delivered you from the domain of darkness and transferred you to the kingdom of his beloved Son. Peter says you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And again, Paul, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. So walk as children of light. You're no longer blind in darkness. You are light now, and you've got a job to do. You are to shine as a light in the darkness that those who are in darkness would see your light and come to the true light that they might receive their sight. Amen? So let your light shine, Christian. I know that's a super cliche thing, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine, but that is absolutely what we have been called to. Let the light of Christ in you shine before people that they might see your works and glorify God because eternity is at stake. Those who persist in blindness will forever be cast into outer darkness, away from the goodness and light of God. But the one who comes to the light, the one who sees, John writes in the final book of Scripture, the revelation of Jesus Christ, no longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in the city, and His servants will worship Him, and they will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no lamp or light or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Amen? That's the destiny of those of you who have seen the light. You will live forever in it, beholding the glory of God's light in His Son.